Um, Peter, James, and John see the glory of Christ. Our memory verse, same as it was last week. Let's say it together, please. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So last week, we looked at the beginning of the third year of Christ's ministry, and then an occasion where he and his were taking a break up in Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of Galilee, where Peter declared Jesus' identity as the Messiah and Son of God. And we spent a fair amount of time that week looking at some of the theological implications of that declaration and the many, many, many misunderstandings of that passage. This week, we're going to look at an event about a week later, roughly the same location. There's many scholars who believe it was there on the same Mount Hermon where Christ was revealed a portion of his true heavenly glory and nature and the disciples' response to this revelation. And per usual, we'll be using readings by Alexander Scorby, starting with this one. Chapter 17 And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Okay, we're going to start off the lesson with one little fill-up of this account, which isn't obvious from reading just the account in Matthew, but if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there'll be people who try to bring up the point. Well, Matthew and Mark's account of this event says it was six days after Peter's confession. Luke says it was eight. Well, since this is clearly a contradiction, the Bible's an error, we might as well all go home. We'll see you guys next week. Now, recognize that counting was done with a bit less precision back then. It didn't matter as much. They weren't measuring the widths of atoms, and they weren't trying to get their timing down to the millisecond. The simple truth is we would probably say it was seven days later. But Matthew and Mark didn't count the starting day or the ending day. They just counted the days between and said it was six. And apparently Luke counted both the starting and the ending day and said it was eight. 
It's just um, this, these accounts come down from a time when time was less important. You didn't get paid by the hour. You got paid by the day. You didn't worry too much about the days of the week unless the Sabbath was rolling around. And just people were less precise. So don't get hung up when you see an apparent contradiction. Try to take a look at it and see if there's a, a reasonable reason. Now, if one said 15 and one said 27, I might have a problem. But I don't have an issue with 6 verses 8. And hence, don't let them confuse you. Don't let them get you tied up in knots. Now, the transfiguration itself. The Jesus took his closest friends. Remember, they're, they're basically in retreat. They're spending some time away from Jesus' area of ministry. They're up in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, an area that's controlled by one of Herod's sons, Philip. <clears throat> and there's just really no Jews up here. So Jesus is not up there to preach. He, remember, he came and he wanted every Jew to hear the message that he had. Hey, you're not doing it right. There's a new way God is revealing. Here I am. The Jews as a group rejected him. But for this time, this week or so, that they're up there, he and his disciples... They're taking a break. So six days after Peter's declaration, or seven, depending on how you want to count it, he takes three of his disciples, often called the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up higher up to the mountain, and they're going to pray. And as Jesus is praying, he begins to change. Uh, he didn't turn into a werewolf, um, but aspects of his physical self changed. Now, the word in the Greek, metamorpho, is to change into something else, uh, and often to change in a characteristic way. What happened is Jesus' divine nature was manifested in his physical body. Heaven is a very bright place compared to earth, apparently. You know, we talk about uh, God shining. And Moses, just by being in contact with God, his face shone, which really freaked out the, the Israelites. Um, and I think that's reasonable. If you're talking to someone whose face is shining, something's not, not quite right. Um, but his, his face shone. His clothing became whiter than is possible to, be, to get white on the earth. Uh, I think, to me, the, the whitest thing I've ever seen is the old-fashioned movie screens that were so, any light you, you flashed on them would just come right back at you, so bright. Um, but this is, this is whiteness beyond any whiteness we can imagine because we're limited down here by certain laws of physics that don't apply to heaven. And uh, again, the description that they used in those days, whiter than any fuller could get it. A fuller is a specialist in bleaching fabric. Uh, because when you get uh, fleece off of sheep, it's dirty. And it's sort of, kind of, maybe a little bit white, but not very. And so you go through a process where you chemically treat it and you lay it out on a hillside so that the sun will bleach it as white as you can get. But even today, with our most advanced chemical treatments, we can't get the white that Jesus' garments became. They are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I say that only part of his divine nature came through. 
We'll talk about that in a moment. His face shone with the brightness of the sun. Remember, Jesus is literally the light of the world, and he's kind of demonstrating it here. Some of that divine nature, some of that light of the world is coming through in Jesus' earthly body. Now, I say this was not a complete transformation because he lacked one aspect that we always see in an appearance of God, Father or Son. When humans see it, the divine aura of holiness tends to be very hard on humans in the nearby vicinity. Um, John later in the book of Revelation, saw Jesus in his full heavenly form. And it says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And if you can't read that line, you're too far from the screens. Um, The full presence of God causes us to accurately see ourselves as the sinful people we are. And apparently the shock is kind of brutal. Um, We can look at three appearances uh, where human beings saw God. In Ezekiel 1.28, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about, an aura like a rainbow. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard the voice of one that spake. Isaiah's experience, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the children of Israel, speaking to Moses after God spoke to them as a nation, then said they to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. If we have an accurate picture of who we are compared to God, it's kind of hard on our self-worth. None of us really want to see ourselves in the light of God's holiness here on earth. Now, there's going to come a time where we're in in heaven and all of that sinful nature has been purged from us completely. Then we can meet with God face to face. But to do it here on earth... It's a difficult thing. And the description of Jesus being transfigured includes the wonder, but it doesn't include the terror. So I would maintain in my study, and your mileage may vary, that it was not a complete transformation of Jesus into his heavenly nature, but it was a partial showing of his divine nature through his human form. Now Luke also tells us that the disciples were full of sleep. Um, The disciples do not have a great track record of praying with Jesus. There's two occasions in the Bible where the Bible, the where the disciples are described as praying with Jesus, and in both cases they fall asleep. I don't know that I would have done any better. Apparently, Jesus was a marathon prayer. It should be a goal for ours, but sometimes the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now. Being heavy asleep would also reduce the impact of this transfiguration. And remember, Jesus Jesus loved these men. These were his closest friends. He's not going to do anything to scare them. And Moses and Elijah appear, and they're discussing Christ's mission with him. His faded, you know, determined by God destiny, and, you know, 
Destiny is not a word uh, we tend to use very much as Americans because we all believe we make our own way. But Jesus came with a purpose, and he was heading towards that purpose. And Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, come down, and they're speaking with Christ about his mission and those events that are six months away now. Now, do you suppose Moses and Elijah showed up wearing sports jerseys with their names on their backs? That'd be a little silly, wouldn't it? Uh, I'm sure uh, Brother Darren would tell us they were in Cowboys jerseys, but I'm not going there. Thank you, brother. Um, so the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah because they'd seen pictures of them, right? No. It's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a minor thing. But the disciples apparently had no trouble recognizing two people they'd never seen before, two heroes of their Jewish and we would say Christian faith, and they didn't have sports jerseys, and they'd never seen pictures of them. You know, our essential natures, I think, are going to shine through in heaven. Who we are is obvious. And these guys came down in their heavenly bodies, and, oh, I've never seen that guy before, but that must be Moses. And that couldn't be anyone but Elijah. So these big two in Jewish history... Authority figures representing God on earth. Moses, through which God gave the law. And Elijah, through which God said to the most powerful kings of the age, I don't think so. Dr tried to drag all of Israel back into alignment with God. The law and the prophets. Remember, all of the Old Testament points to who? Jesus. And this is just a physical representation there on the mountain of that reality, the big men of the Old Testament talking to Christ about what? About his mission, the central event of history. Peter, good old Peter, just had to fill the silence. Here's Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking. And three disciples just sitting there with their mouths hanging open. And Peter has to fill the silence. Let's build three tabernacles. It's so great that we're here. Now, this is often interpreted as three temples. Because tabernacle was used in the Bible uh, as the place where God met his people. And so if we're going to build a tabernacle, which was the predecessor to the temple, Peter must be saying, they say, Let's build three temples, and we can worship Christ, and we can worship Moses, and we can worship Elijah. I'm not convinced that's what he meant. Because the word tabernacle here is just basically a tent, a shelter. Peter could have been saying, let's just build three shelters, and we can stay here and enjoy this wonderful time. Here with Jesus and his glory and with Moses and with Elijah and maybe put off that uncomfortable destiny Christ was talking about. Let's just stay here. And there's always an urge, I think, when you get into a retreat, when you get into a mountaintop experience, you just want to stay there as long as possible. It's good to feel that close to God. 
And Mark, in recounting this, just basically said Peter didn't know what to say. So he just disengaged his brain and his mouth started flapping. Been there. And I think it's significant that Mark put that into his account. Because remember where Mark got most of his information about the ministry of Christ. He got it from the mouth of Peter. So there's Peter admitting, I didn't know what to say, so I was just flapping my gums. But Peter, in saying this, kind of disrupts the focus. The disciples, whose attention should have been on one place, is maybe a little bit scattered now, maybe a little fractured. And God the Father steps in to refocus the moment because God's Shekinah glory. Now that Shekinah, a Hebrew word that never appears in the Bible, um, we use it to describe a phenomenon that appears in the Bible. And the the term Shekinah comes from uh, Jewish rabbinical teaching. Um, And I wrote it down and I forgot what it means. Uh, Glory? No, it's not glory. It, It has a very specific meaning. Yeah, I've forgotten. Oh, well. But kind of. But it's more describing the, sh- the shining. It's, it's the presence of God literally is what it is. The Shekinah glory surrounds them. Basically, it snuck up on them. And God the Father speaks essentially the same words that he did at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That takes that focus from three figures right down to one. And he also adds the phrase, hear ye him, which was not in the time when he was there in baptism. Listen to what he's got to say. Now this, unfortunately, this is the presence of God. And that blasts the disciples straight into that, woe is me, they fall on their faces. Fearfulness, exposure to God's glory lets them see themselves accurately. Now, you know what, I'm going to skip that point. Let's move on. And Jesus comes over to touch and to comfort his disciples. And when they look up, everything's back to normal. Jesus no longer has the divine appearance. The Shekinah glory of God is gone. The frightening change is over. Jesus is back to being their friend. And then coming down the mountain, he asks them to keep this secret until after his resurrection. Apparently, even from the other disciples. Now, on a very human scale, I can see that. Because if I'm one of the other nine, and they got to experience the transfiguration, I'm going to be jealous in my my humanity. And it's going to be a griping point for the next six months. (laughs) Also, I don't know that anybody else was ready for the truth. Uh, This is a, you know... The disciples at this point understood on some basis that Jesus was the Son of God. But there is an enormous difference between the Son of God and the all caps, Son of God. It's it's a whole other level of revelation. Uh, And trust me, those three disciples had a different impression of Jesus after the transfiguration than they did before. That's a unique human experience which not a lot of people have had in the history of the world. Very few people have even seen the Shekinah glory of God. 
much less to be enveloped in it. Now, this had to be very trans transformational for the disciples as well. Let's continue on in Second uh, Peter, Peter writing about this event. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. So 2 Peter, a book written to the saved exiles, those saved Jews who were scattered throughout the world. He says, I was there. I saw the transfiguration. I heard the voice of God. I know these to be true because I was an eyewitness to these events. But don't take my word for it. He says, you've got something more sure. The Holy Scriptures, and I'm going to hold up something which is not exclusively a Bible. Uh-oh. I'm going to mess it up, too. Thank you. The Holy Scriptures are God's eyewitness. He was there. He saw it all. And Peter basically said, why would you take my word for it? Yeah, I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. And it was awesome, but you've got the Holy Scriptures. God was there. God saw it all. That's a better reference than I could ever be. It's, it's the one place in logic that you're allowed to argue from authority. In logic, an argument of authority, from authority is the weakest argument of all. Unless you base it on the one authority that is the authority, God. Trumps everything else. Peter says the message might be fabulous, but it's not a fable or a well-crafted story. But if we look at that passage we just read, which starts with, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's that starting word? For. And when you run into a four in the Bible, it doesn't mean you've been counting and just got past three, usually. Four means there, four. And good interpretation, good her hermeneutics says, whoa, 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 we can't start at four. We've got to go backwards and see what we're fouring about. The four has to be there for some reason. So we can't start at 16. We've got to walk back further, and this is why I left Brother Bob a note, because we're putting the scriptures out of order here, and he, he would have asked me, did you get this in the right order, Eric? We have that next passage, please, folks. The second epistle general of Peter. 
Chapter 1 Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we've looked a little at that passage that leads to that four. And in this passage, it tells us that God has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and that he has given us these things through our knowledge of his son. And that he set us on a path of growth. And Peter walks this growth through eight steps, starting with faith, because without faith we cannot be saved, so that's the beginning. From faith, virtue. That's not a word we use very much anymore. I don't think we hardly describe anyone as having a virtuous life. But what is, what is virtue? Virtue is doing the right thing because it's right. Virtue is aligning your life with God's standards. That's all virtue is. God has established an external standard, his law. Now, that standard is not used for salvation, but it's a standard for living. This is the way God would like you to live your life. So add to faith virtuous living, trying to live, align your life with God's standard. And then to that, add knowledge. And I find this very interesting because I'd always put knowledge before virtue. But Peter, writing for God, says you start with faith and then you adjust your life in line with God's expectations. Then you worry about learning more. You don't need that knowledge to learn to live better because God's standard is a pretty simple one. But that knowledge then 
helps you to understand the deeper things of God. And Peter says, out of that knowledge then grows temperance. So you stop drinking alcohol. Well, the temperance movement we may associate with alcohol, but temperance as an idea is tempering your life to avoid excess. It's self-control. Something um, I could do better at. And again, oddly, I'd say patience leads to temperance, but Peter says, get yourself under control first, and then you'll learn to be properly patient. I think that makes it, there's a certain sense there. If you get used to controlling yourself on a day-to-day basis, you're less focused on, I need it right now. And patience will flow out of that. And then godliness. But wait, isn't that virtue? See, virtue is trying to get there. Virtue is saying there's an external standard that I don't really want to live to, but God wants me to, so I'm going to do my best. But as day after day after day after day, you're sticking to this standard, eventually it becomes habit. And that automatic living to God's standard, that's godliness. That's not even thinking about, well, I want to do this. You're used to living to God's standard. And if you're wondering why I keep using my arm, it's the closest thing I've got to a standard (laughs) here. It's not really an external one. It's part of me. But this is also the distance that mankind used for many years for measuring everything, the cubit. So it's it's a, and day to day, this is always the same. (laughs) For me, at least. Your your arms may change length. I don't want to know about that. But beginning with faith, that thing that saves us, our starting point, virtue, trying to live by God's standard, knowledge, learning more about God, temperance, learning to control ourselves, leading then to a little bit willingness to wait on God and wait on circumstance and not getting always tied up in the fact that we haven't yet got what we want, leads eventually to godliness. All of these things, though, are are me. They have to do with how I relate to God. Then we get into brotherly kindness, which I would translate using the Greek as agape kindness, the kindness that's associated with God, starting to treat others the way God would expect us to treat them. See, everything up to this point has been trying to straighten me out. Until I straighten me out, I can't really be properly kind to others. And then agape kindness leads to agape, I keep saying agave. I don't know why I got tequila on the brain, but agape love, kindness, is treating others the way you would want to be treated. Like you're no better than them. Love is putting their needs ahead of you, now you're treating them as though they're better than you. I think you got to get to kindness before you can get to love. It's a a wonderful progression. But Peter is talking about this as a necessary progression because without this, we tend to be fruitless. We tend to forget that we were saved and we just act like the unsaved. That this is the path to becoming fruitful for God, is what Peter says. 
His concern is the growth of the next generation of Christians. And he says, I'm always going to remind you about this while I'm here. Even if I know that you know it, I'm going to keep reminding you because it's necessary. We're all human. But he sees his life coming to an end. And he's going to make sure that he's recorded these events that he experienced. Write it down for these people that it'll be available after his death. Because godliness was important to Peter after his brush with God. That was transformational for Peter, for James and John as well. We'll talk about them. But he kind of had a life goal from then on. He saw what he could be. Now, he always had been next to Christ for three years. And he saw year after day after day, year after year, the standard that Christ lived to. But seeing the divine Christ was another layer of revelation. It was a very, very meaningful day for him. And that day, that experience, is what he's using as the anchor point for this entire passage. This is how you should live your life. This is the progression you should work on. Because godliness is important. John, similar experience. Could we have the passage, please? Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John similarly wrote about the importance of godliness to the saints. We should strive to be pure. Godly is a, a synonym here. We should strive to be godly. And John says, because we're going to spend eternity in heaven, it's appropriate that we strive to be ready for it while we're living here on the earth. Now, that's just two verses. It's a whole lot shorter. John didn't tend to be as uh, wordy in his writings as Peter. It's, his, uh, his three letters were much shorter than many of the other letters. Quick notes, as it were. Um, but the same principle is there. John experienced the Mount of Transfiguration, and it gave him an impetus to encourage others to be godly. Now, we see this in James, too. I can't pull out an easy passage because the book of James was written very early, um, and it really focused more on tying back into the old Jewish traditions uh, and how important it was to not just say, well, you know, I have faith and abandon all of that. But it talks the whole book about godly living and how faith without godly living is dead. So all of these guys, these three, all of three of them, who were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it kind of changed their focus and their encouragement to us who were not there is in reading the description, allow the reality of the divine Christ to inspire in you an urge towards godliness. That's the real focus of the lesson this week. So it's your turn now. How might you respond to someone who said the transfiguration didn't really happen? Because it's a, it's a miracle, and so there's a lot of people who want to strip all the miracles out of the Bible. This one certainly implies Jesus might be divine. We can't have that. 
How might you respond to such a claim? I know you're ready, brother. Let's see if we can get someone else first. Anybody? Let it be established in the mouths of two or three people, right, brother? Yeah, American court of law typically requires one. We have three corroborating. Okay. Why is it important to understand that all the law and the prophets point to Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone else? Brother, a little louder. Oh, you're so right, brother. I mean, the entire point of Jesus' first year of ministry was I'm here as prophesied by the law and the prophets. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Finally, how does the event of the transfiguration assure you of the hope we have in Christ? You guys are staring at me like a box of donuts completely glazed. Let's try to get past that glaze. How does the event of the transfiguration, transfiguration, reassure you of the hope we have in Christ? Someone? Brother. Brother. 